0: stories from the second world war continue to fascinate and even entertain audiences around the world today's guest tells those stories to educate a new generation about the horrors of war and the heroes that saved the free world he's tim gray this week on story in the public square hello and welcome to story in the public square where storytelling meets public affairs i'm jim ludus from the pell center at salve regina university joining me from his home in rhode island is my friend and co-host g wayne miller of the providence journal each week we talk about big issues with great guests authors journalists filmmakers and more to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the united states today this week we're joined by tim gray an award-winning filmmaker, as well as president and founder of the World War II Foundation. His new film is Surrender on the USS Missouri, and it can be seen on public television stations across the United States beginning this spring. Tim, thank you so much for being with us.
1: It's always great being on with you guys. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, we, we want to talk about the film, which really is a is a wonderful achievement, but I, I want to begin first with sort of a bigger question about the continuing power and draw and legacy of the Second World War. Why is it still so relevant to us today?
1: Um, That's a really good question. I think um, a lot of it has to do with living in a divided America today. And people like to look back on a time when the United States came together for, for a common cause and a common good um which was to to stop fascism uh and the spread across europe and and also what was going on in the pacific so um anytime you put on the television anytime you go to barnes and noble um, you see new books, you see new, new films. Hollywood still cranking out documentaries and and feature films on World War II. And a lot of it has to do with just the times we're living in. People are looking back at that time of their parents and their grandparents as, as really, truly the last time America really came together um, as a country. There was a little bit of that after 9 11, we saw when everyone put a aside their politics and and um and and came together for a certain amount of time but it's just looking back and saying you know how how do we as a country get back to um really bringing everyone together and um they look at that time as as a common goal where where young people Um, came together and and older people came together and there was one goal and we were a team. And and I think that's something that's definitely lacking today.
0: One of the defining characteristics of your films is their uh, direct, you're telling the stories of veterans, the people who were there. It's not just the big events, but it's the stories of the individual stories of the veterans who were there. Right. Yeah. I mean, do they, do they, have that same sense of 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 I don't know if it's nostalgia for them but the sense of longing for that sense of unity that that they were a part of
1: um they do and um, a lot of it has to do with you know, that that was an interesting time in our history we were coming out of the great depression and and young people had had seen their their fathers lose their jobs so they were a tough generation to begin with heading into world War II. Um, but it, it just, that generation just goes to show you that if you, if you can come together, you can accomplish anything. And, and it was a bunch of teenagers who really helped to, to save the world. And so a lot of that blueprint still resonates today. And we talk to young people about that, that you're capable of doing great things. You look back on the 17 and 18 year olds and 19 year olds who helped save the world. And they're still very humble Um, when they talk about it, the veterans, um, but they also recognize how divided America is today. And and I think they came from that time when that blueprint was, if we do come together, we can be a great nation. And America became a superpower during that time. On June 6, 1944, D-Day, America became a superpower on that day. And we've been a superpower ever since. So I think the veterans, who are all very humble and 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 not one to um, offer their opinions about a lot of things, recognize that we are capable as a nation of just coming together for that for that common good. And, and taking care of a lot of the issues that need to be taken care of. And um, so they, they don't volunteer that information. But if you ask them if they're disappointed about what's going on in our country today, they will tell you that they are because they lived through a different time when it was opposite. That was the opposite um, scenario.
2: It isn't a piece of the continuing power of, of the story of the war, the fact that there are still people who fought in it, who are alive, and they are you know, obviously dwindling in number, and and there won't be many left soon, and, and eventually there won't be any. Is that part of what you see in, in your work, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, the message is still there. You can't talk to a World War I veteran. You can't talk to a Civil War veteran about the division in the country in the 1860s. You can't talk to a veteran of the War of 1812 or or George Washington, but these guys still are here. They have something to offer. And I think if we don't listen to them, it's a big mistake. I always tell people we should get a group of these veterans in a room in Washington and let them hash it out for a couple hours. And you may not like some of the salty language. You may not like the cigar smoke and some of the other things that, that are going on in that room, but they're going to solve the problem. And they're going to just cut through all of the red tape and all of the other stuff that you really can't say on television. But <laughs> they're going to come to a solution based on what's good for everyone. So um, I always kind of kid people: you know, put them in a room, give them give them the topic, give them the issue, and let them come out and let them let them solve it. And um, but yeah, I mean. They don't wayne they don't go around at the warwick mall or the mall of america in minneapolis and wear a t-shirt that says you know ask me how to save the world's problems but yet they live through that time period they're the only ones who did live live through that time period and um, so they have this blueprint, and it's whether we want to listen to it or not, that's up to us. And unfortunately, history is always the first thing to go in schools these days. We, we want to cut history, we want to cut the arts, and then we'll worry about sports. But, but these things that have taught us and brought us to where we are are being ignored on such a large level that it scares me, because history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes And if we can't look back on that time period where we went through so many different things, genocide, war, suffering, um, civilian deaths, all kinds of things that, that happened during that time period from 1939 to 1945, they saw it all. They lived through it all. They experienced it all. They have something to tell us. Do we want to ask them? you know, what, what is the remedy for the problems that we're facing today, but, but they've been through it. And a lot of people have been through these things. And if we can't go and talk to them about their experiences during the Vietnam era of, of, of how um, divisive it was during that time, and, and even in the 70s, um, we're, just, we're just never gonna learn as a society that these things have happened before. And there is a remedy, uh, there is a fix to these things that we face.
2: Do you get into the stories of people who did not serve but were alive? You know, the the women who stayed at home, the mothers, the children who were coming of age during that time, and many of whom, of course, are still alive. Tell us about that, why that is an important part also of the story.
1: We, we, we get into the to the to the boys and girls who, who served on the home front and had the victory gardens and helped their their moms who um, went off to work and and you know went from being a homemaker to making tanks and b-17s and ammunition I mean World War II is such an important time for women in the workforce to prove that really they could do anything that men could do and that that was huge but we also get into, the, the survivors and the people who were caught up in the war. You're talking about a time period where 60 to 70 million people died and and, and, a, and a great uh, amount of those people were just people caught up in the war. They were civilians in Russia or they were caught up in the Blitz during the German bombings of London and in England. Um, people who just suffered because you know it, it was wartime. So to me, they're some of the most fascinating stories. And um, so it's not only the veterans. I mean, we always look at everything at a 5,000 foot view. We don't look at it at the 30,000 foot view, which is the strategy of the war and why the battle was fought. We look at it at the for, at the view of the individual combatants and those who suffered through it. And those also who, who, who came of age um, as teenagers and proved to themselves that you know they they could do anything and accomplish anything and we try to relate that back to people today when we have a group of teenagers into our education center we talk to them like you know can you believe at your age you were landing uh, on peleliu or guadalcanal or you were landing on d day you are capable of great things in your life when 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 history and destiny calls upon you it could be something large it could be something small you are capable look what these country boys and city boys did they never thought they'd be able to do things like that but but in effect they helped save the world at at your particular age so um and it also it also resonates with me because if you're going through a tough time in your life the lessons are also there whether you have someone in your family who's who's dealing with health issues or even the pandemic we've been going through we've been through the influenza in 1918. We've been through tough times in our in our history before. We've always gotten through it and we'll get through this as well, but history has a lesson for us. History has that blueprint. Whether we wanna look back at the blueprint and get it out again is up to us.
0: Hey Tim, you just mentioned this, but you mentioned the education center. So in addition to being, a, being a, a really accomplished filmmaker, you're also the founder and chairman of the World War II Foundation. And among its initiatives is this global education center. Tell our audience a little bit about what it is and what it does.
1: The Education Center um, is really geared towards students. It's an opportunity for them to come into a a facility where we have about 4,000 World War II artifacts and have a a tactile experience where they get to to touch things from the war. And we've had thousands of kids come in, and I can tell you it's been a mix of public, charter, private schools. We have not had one student come in and, and, like, go off in the corner and be bored. they they can't believe when they're finally introduced to the colors of World War II, which is considered the black and white war, that there are actually all these vibrant colors from the war, or that the Germans wore these helmets and the Americans wore these helmets and the Japanese wore these helmets or the flags or anything. So for them, it's experiencing the war um, on a different level than our films. So we have a theater in there, we have a library of about 600 books that students can take out. So we become this conduit to introducing them to something that really isn't being taught in schools anymore, which is this time period that defines us even to you know, this day. And, and they're all caught up in it. And um, a lot of it falls on the shoulders of the teachers themselves who say, we feel that this time period needs to be expanded on. We can't do this in a day in our classroom. We want the kids to get this experience where they can learn something, be introduced to it, and then go to Google and Google D-Day or, or Google Pearl Harbor or Battle of the Bulge or Auschwitz or whatever it is. So again, you go back to being that, that conduit to at least getting them exposed to the moments and the people from the war, and, and you hope that they take it from there.
2: So you you mentioned the in-person experience that teachers and and students have. It's so important, and I would argue, just to digress for a second, that it's equally important for other chapters of our history. I'm thinking of indigenous museums, for example. When you go into the Tomaquag Museum here in Rhode Island, it's very different than just seeing it in a book or you you get to touch and experience. When did you become interested in World War II and why?
1: Good question um when i was six i think i was about six and i I came across one of those almanacs of the war and was immediately um taken by the individual stories not so much the strategy of the war and everything but the the soldier in north africa or rommel in north africa or um Um, I remember as a 10-year-old, my my mom asked me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want Edward R. Murrow's broadcast from the Blitz in London. And she's like, wouldn't you rather have a bike? And I'm like, no, I want want to listen to (laughs) Edward R. Murrow's broadcast of the Blitz in London. And she bought all these cassettes back then for me. And, And so I was just, you know, just the drama of the time and the personal stories of the time and how people came through it. And it just has been a blueprint for my own life, for challenges I've had in my life and the ups and downs that everyone has in their lives, that I look back in that and I say, you know, if they can accomplish and live through that time period, I certainly can move off the beach myself and and, and keep moving forward. So. I've just had a real and I've read about it my entire life and spent a long time as a journalist in between, which which helped prepare me to do the film part of what um what I've been able to do. But I've I've never been any I've never been more passionate about anything professionally than sitting down with these men and women and survivors and getting into a conversation with them and trying to draw out things from them that they have not even told their own families. And and I think just the knowledge of you know, I feel like I can sit down and have a conversation with any veteran or survivor who, who existed in any part of the world during that time and draw things out of them. Um, and, that, and that's and that been one of the goals of, of how we produce the films.
0: So let's get to the new film. It's Surrender sure. of the USS Missouri. Tell us a little bit about it.
1: You know, this is a film we've been, we spent a lot of time at Pearl Harbor and we spent a lot of time at the Arizona Memorial. And I'm always looking at the USS Missouri. And it's interesting when you go to Pearl Harbor that you have the beginning of World War II for the United States, which United States, which is Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. And then about 250 yards away, you have the end of World War II, which is the surrender on the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945. So they're within eyesight of each other. And I always looked at that and saying, you know, that, that's a comparison compelling story to have this battleship 250 yards away from this sunken battleship where 1,177 sailors died um, during the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I said, I always wanted to, to do that bookend of, of the beginning of the war for the United States in the end. So that's how the film uh, came about. Anytime we do a film, we, we want to make it relatable to the younger generation. That's always in the back of our mind. So I thought, you know, who who can we get to narrate this who um, is out there now, who's popular with the younger generation. So we came up with country music star Luke Bryan, who just had his 26th number one hit in country music. And he's like the biggest name in country music. And we approached him and, and he said he would do it. So it's the first film we've done with a little bit of Georgia twang in it, which is interesting. But you know, Luke will talk about the film to his audience, which are teenagers and young people. And we hope that gets them to watch the film and then again, go back and want to learn more about World War II. But you know, this war that started on September 1st, 1939 with the German invasion of Poland um, ended on the battleship in Tokyo Bay and um we were able to come up with interviews with some of the survivors who are still around who watched this defining moment in history and uh, they talked to us about where they were in the battleship and what they saw and what their feelings were about the war officially coming to an end so it was very impactful from from that standpoint
0: we need to take a quick moment for station identification this is story in the public square where storytelling meets public affairs An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce story in the public square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Tim Gray, an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose latest film, Surrender on the USS Missouri, debuts on American public television later this spring. He's also the founder and president of the World War II Foundation, and you can follow them on Twitter at WWII Foundation.
2: Uh, it's just incredible, and there's there's
0: nobody else doing
2: the the depth and extent of of the work that you're doing. Tell us about the the history of the Missouri itself. It, it was the last battleship built is that correct and it It was
1: it was the last battleship built and uh headed into the pacific in 1944 so you know work had started uh on the battleship about 10 months 11 months before pearl harbor even began um and then finally it ended up in the pacific and took part in the battle for iwo jima and then survived the kamikaze attacks at okinawa and then shelled the japanese uh, mainland as well and then they got the order um, to pull away from the coast of Japan, and nobody knew why. But, but the reason was is that the United States was getting ready to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then, of course, the president at the time was Harry Truman, who was from Independence, Missouri. So people always wonder, you know, why was Majur- Missouri chosen as the ship to hold the surrender on? And the real reason is because Harry Truman was from Missouri, and, and his daughter had christened the battleship. And and sent it on its way out to the Pacific. So there's that tie-in there. Um, but the guys on Missouri didn't didn't know they were going to be the surrender ship um, until you know until almost you know like a week beforehand, um, and they were just very proud. Um, and also, it, it, they, would, they would have taken part in the invasion of Japan as well, Missouri, but um, the atomic bombs ended that and saved millions of lives. In effect, is what the dropping of the bombs accomplished when you think about the Americans and the allies who would have had to gone in and the Japanese themselves. So that's why Missouri was chosen. And um, the guys who, who were on it that day are just incredibly proud to be you know, in that moment in
2: history. Wait, where was the ship built
1: it was uh, built in uh, Brooklyn at the at the Brooklyn Navy Yard and was launched from there and uh, and then headed through the Panama Canal with about 12 inches to spare on either side of the canal. And they were kicking up concrete on on when they would rub up against the canal and then they headed out into the Pacific and for their shakedown. And um, so it was the last battleship built and and. Um, You know, it's it's just an important piece of history that still exists that people can go visit today. And they have a marker on the ship today where you can see where the table was, where the instrument of surrender was signed.
0: Hey, Tim, so let's talk a little bit about the men that you profile, the the Navy and Marine Corps veterans that were there that day in Tokyo Bay. Uh, You know, I'm always fascinated in your films, whether or not you find the story first or the veterans to help tell that story first. How does that process work for you? And tell us a little bit about the about the veterans that you profiled in this film.
1: Um, we look at a story and then we say we want to do that story. So we're doing a story, a few stories. We're involved with about six films right now. So we we look at the topic, and then you follow up and say, okay, on this topic, are there anybody, is there anybody still alive who can you know, tell us about what it was like to be there at that time. So when I identified Missouri as the film that we wanted to do, um, we already had some archival interviews with some Arizona veterans we had done over the years, but it, was there anybody from Missouri who was alive that witnessed to surrender? So then you start putting your research hat on and, and you know wearing out the internet on, on Google. and then you you find these men, a handful who are who are still alive in other parts of the country, and then you follow up with them, you, you you get a hold of them, you say, would you be interested in in being a part of this film and they always say yes. Um, humbly, they always say yes, and then you you get out and you you interview them. So it's always coming up with the story first, and then casting a wide net to see who's still around, who can lend perspective to that story. So that that's always a challenging because these guys are all in their mid 90s. Even the babies now are in their mid 90s um, and approaching 100 years old. So so we were able to find uh, three or four guys who really were uh, played a central role in the surrender um ceremony that day one of them was a marine named jerry peterson and there were only 40 marines on the uss missouri you know, there were there were 2,000 plus sailors and and this one marine detachment and he was part of the honor guard so he and his 40 marines you know, watched the whole thing happen and to have that perspective from somebody um, who witnessed the whole Japanese contingent coming on board and the surrender signing and, and being a, a minority amongst all the sailors was fascinating to me.
2: Uh, so, so, so walk us through the actual ceremony from from the moment the the Japanese delegation, arrives. And, and how did they get there? I'm, I'm curious how they got there.
1: They they took a launch to the Missouri. So the okay. Missouri is anchored in Tokyo Bay. So they take a launch. And one of the things I found fascinating, um, this was all about intimidation. This, this whole ceremony was about letting the Japanese know um, that the Allies were victorious, and that this war was over, and that the Allies had won this war, that Quote unquote, the Japanese had started on December 7th, 1941. So, as soon as this Japanese contingent comes on board, and the Japanese contingent averages in height 5'2, five, 5'3, five, there is a line of Marines, two lines of Marines, six feet or over taller or over on either side of the entrance so when the japanese come on they're they're dwarfed right away by these six foot one six foot two marines who are standing at attention so right away macarthur is sending the signal to the japanese that you lost the war and we are mightier and we've always been mightier than you and and, and right was always going to win um, so the contingent comes on board and Um, You know, they're made to wait a little bit and then the surrender signing begins um, and it's drawn out. It's about a 23 minute ceremony. But the symbolism um, on that day was extraordinary. And having generals Percival there and Wainwright, both commanders, uh, British and American, who spent the majority of the war in a Japanese prison camp, um, having them there and, and signing the instrument of surrender was just another message to the Japanese that we had won the war. So there was plenty of symbolism um, during the ceremony itself. And, um, you know, the Japanese came on and, and um, they were made to feel very, very small, both literally and figuratively.
2: What about, what about the feelings and what, what the Marines were feeling and thinking and the, the other Americans being face-to-face with people they had fought Not face-to-face, obviously. For the first time, they are now seeing actual Japanese people who they had been at war with until that moment.
1: You know, it's interesting. um, Most of the reaction we got from the guys were they were just glad the war was over and they could go home. That that was the universal feeling. I mean, there was certainly... um, um, hate there because a lot of their friends had died in the Pacific and islands like Guadalcanal and Tarawa and and and, and Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And the brutality of the war in the Pacific was much different than, the, than what was going on in Europe uh, because the Japanese never ratified or, or went by the, the Geneva Convention. So the brutality of the war in the Pacific was extraordinary. But, but most of the feeling was the guys were just ready to put it behind them and go home and and to a man that's what all of them said there wasn't any outward hostility towards the japanese maybe they felt it internally but they were just happy to know that they had lived through this experience and that they were going to go home and to their wives or girlfriends or their families so there was a sense of relief that day on the battleship that really this is it you know you don't you don't know if it's it until it's actually signed because while the war had been over for a few weeks, it wasn't officially over. And I think a lot of these guys had seen enough to know that it's not a done deal until that instrument of surrender is officially signed. And and once that day took place, they all kind of just exhaled and said, we are are really going
0: home. Hey, Tim, we got uh, about 40 seconds left here. I know that you're excited about one of your upcoming films about Elvis Presley (laughs) and the USS Arizona. So tell us a little bit about the King.
1: Yeah, Elvis uh, actually played a role. He held a benefit concert in uh, Pearl Harbor. The USS Arizona Memorial Project was struggling. And Colonel Parker, his manager said, would you mind playing a, a benefit concert at Pearl Harbor at Block Arena? And Elvis said, sure. And the concert helped get the uh, Arizona Memorial Project over the over the hump and, and and get it officially dedicated. So a lot of people don't know the story. And so were we were able to interview uh, a lot of people who went to the concert. We've got some great, great stories in there as well. And it's being narrated by Jim Nance of CBS Sports and actor Kyle Chandler as well. So we're really excited. Again, it's just another way to connect World War II and people like, with Elvis? I'm like, wait. See World
0: War II. <laughs> but the film right now is Surrender at the USS Missouri. How can people see it?
1: It'll be hitting American public television in May
0: super super uh it's a tremendous film and uh just thank tim you. are great fans of your work thank you so much for being with us always a thank he, you he's tim gray the film is surrender on the uss missouri you should check it out that is all the time we have this week for story in the public square but if you want to know more about the show you can find us on facebook or twitter or visit pellcenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes for wayne i'm jim asking you to join us again next time for more story in the public square